This program is made possible entirely by the listeners of the show. For all the ways you can help, check out the support box at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, Citizen Radio, The Progressive, NPR, and The Young Turks with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Rachel Maddow Show. The magazine here also contained a little article in which our commander in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal, and his aides made catty comments about the president and the vice president. So Obama fired his four-star ass. (laughs) By the way, if you'd like to see a five-star ass, that's right here on the cover. (laughs) I don't know if that close-up was necessary. But besides the gossipy behind-the-scenes name-calling, there was another part of the article I found disturbing. The article part. You see, most of it was about McChrystal's controversial strategy known as counterinsurgency, or COIN, that makes our soldiers nation-builders, or as the article says, think Green Berets as an armed Peace Corps. Well, I'm sorry, but peace is not the Green Berets' thing. That's the Raspberry Berets. <laughs> folks, folks, coin, folks, coin is handcuffing our soldiers with the laudable goal of lowering civilian casualties. But hey, we're trying to win a war here. And I say you can't make an omelet without killing somebody who has an omelet. <laughs> so frankly, I am glad McChrystal's out of there. I mean, his own chief of operations said that even if coin works, quote, it's not going to look like a win, smell like a win, or taste like a win. Come on! If we can make yogurt taste like SpongeBob, I think we can make Afghanistan taste like Victory Berry Blasts. Thankfully. That looks delicious. Now, thankfully, President Obama has named a new Afghan flavor saver, General David Petraeus. Please be seated. And Petraeus is going to change everything. There's no change to the overall war strategy. General Petraeus understands that strategy because he helped shape it. Counterinsurgency will continue. That's what I call leadership. Do the same thing and expect different results. So, McChrystal's out, Petraeus is in, nothing changes. I'll never understand why this guy wrote this Rolling Stone article. Here to tell me why this guy wrote this Rolling Stone article, please welcome this guy, Michael Hastings. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Good to see you. Now, Michael, why did you write this article? I mean, you got McChrystal out of there. Did you get what you wanted? Are you happy with yourself? Uh, I wrote the article to bring attention to the war in Afghanistan. It's usually very undercovered, even though there's a lot of journalists there doing great work. Uh, I, I had no sort of agenda to get McChrystal fired or not. I didn't think he actually he was fireable. Do you feel any responsibility for upsetting the chain of command in a time of war? Uh, no, I, I think the, the key question is I didn't fire McChrystal. The White House fired McChrystal. So I believe they used this opportunity 
to get rid of someone they weren't happy with. But these guys, these generals, had no defense against you. I mean, all they do is fight terrorists. They're not ready to fight a journalist. You right. took advantage of them. They're innocents. No, when you walk around with a tape recorder and a notebook, I'm sure people are shocked when your quotes actually show up in print. That's a, that's a good question. You're, 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 you're walking around there in Afghanistan with all these soldiers and your little notepad there. Yeah. What's a reporter writing a story for Rolling Stone doing hanging out with our troops in Afghanistan? And, and as a follow-up, what are our troops hanging out in Afghanistan for? <laughs> well, well, the uh, Rolling Stone reaches a demographic um, where, where a lot of the people who are fighting the war would actually read. The average, I think, Rolling Stone reads is about 30. A lot of the young officers read Rolling Stone. Generation Kill is one of the most famous articles Rolling Stone has done recently. That, that, was, that was obviously done in Rolling Stone. It was made into a TV miniseries. Um, so, so there's definitely a fan base there. As for what we're doing in Afghanistan, uh, that, that's, that's actually the substance of the article. No, what, uh, that's what I was talking about, this, this coin, this counterinsurgency right, right. strategy. Do, you, you say here the soldiers don't like it. No. What don't they like about it? They don't like that it puts restriction on their use of force, so they feel like they're not able to actually fight the war they're there to fight. So these soldiers are more ready to fight this war than the generals will let them. For sure. The it, generals are losing this. Well, that's what the, the soldiers would put it that way. Who's ultimately responsible for any of this? Who, who's the person who implements the plan? President Obama is ultimately responsible. Shouldn't he call for his own resignation on this one? <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be a tough sell. You think this is a fair shake? For sure. Is it the role of the press to report what a general says, even if the general later says, please don't print that? Because they did say, don't print some of the things we said, right? Uh, uh, did they ask that? Two, two months later, before the story is about to go to print, I had a phone conversation with uh, General McChrystal's press aide. And did he say, don't print some of the things the general said? He said, hey, you know all that stuff that you saw, heard? Uh, can you please, you know, not do that? Okay, and did you ever call no backseats? <laughs> Did you ever call no backseats? I, I, I did not call. You did no not call no backseats. Well, backseats. then you should have not printed it, sir. When President Obama announced the escalation, the surge in that speech December 1st at West Point, those 30,000 extra troops, what General Hodges here in Kandahar repeatedly called the president's uplift, most of those troops came here to the south. You might remember hearing a lot about the Marja operation that started in adjacent Helmand province in mid-February. Intense combat led by U.S. Marines and British troops and Afghan forces to be followed by what General McChrystal called a government in a box, rolling out governance following the combat. Government in a box hasn't exactly worked out that way. Marja isn't stood up by any means. Security there isn't established. And people siding with the Afghan government there against the insurgency have been threatened and targeted up to and including assassination. 
Now, Kandahar has been portrayed in the press as the twin operation to Marja, twin but bigger. The line I'd read a million times before I got here was that since Marja hasn't worked out to be a success, at least yet, maybe ever, that the same type of operation in Kandahar has been delayed. That's what it seemed like at home, at least to me, before I got here. But here, it does not seem like that. Here, it's clear that Kandahar isn't delayed. It's well underway. It's just that they're not blowing things up in Kandahar. They're doing things like opening police stations. But let me let me show you some of that instead of just trying to explain it. Uh, we flew in a Black Hawk helicopter with General Hodges from Kandahar Airfield to a nearby forward operating base called Camp Nathan Smith. Then we drove in a mine-resistant vehicle up through Kandahar City to see how the president's uplift, such a happy term, uh, is working out on the ground here. Uh, a bit of context that will be useful for understanding the discussion here. The operation in Marja was called Operation Mushtarak. This one in Kandahar that's now underway is called Operation Hamkari. What separates Hamkari, say, from Mushtarak is that we're not trying to invade or go into Kandahar. We're already here. So uh, that means it's improving security with the existing security infrastructure with police. Uh, up until now, we've only had one and a half companies, about 150 military police, to partner with the 1,800 Afghan police that are part of the normal Kandahar City Police Force. Uh, Presence Uplift has given us five companies, so we'll be up to almost 500 military police here by the end of the summer, a tripling of our ability to partner with Afghan police. The Uplift will triple the number of MPs, military police, that we have, which will then enable us to put more MPs at every police station 24-7. Right now, they're there for about four days a week. Okay. So eventually, we want to have just police on the security ring. Yeah. No American soldiers, no ANCOP. The ANCOP are a national force that the government needs to be able to move around where they need them. Um, but where we are now, for the security ring, we want to uh, create this perception and sense of security just like you get when you when you go to the metro and you see a, a policeman there at the metro you, you know it's it's being patrolled and you, and you feel more secure because you see police that you trust that's what the security ring is about everybody will see Afghan National Civil Order Police which have a good reputation partnered with American soldiers uh, and because you've got American soldiers there uh, that will help defeat the perception that these things are just toll booths. Yeah. That they're taking bribes. Right. Yeah. Um, then the police will come back in and be able to take these things over. Well, can you imagine, though, at that point when the police come in and take these things over, when it's not ANCOP, when it's local city police, when U.S. soldiers are gone, can you imagine it not going back to bribes and corruption? I believe it's possible, but, I, but I, it's certainly not a given. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the history of this city, of this area, of being on the Silk on the silk Route um, is people buying and trading with people passing through here. And so safe passage is centuries old. Yeah. So I mean that's, I'm not, I'm not trying to justify or defend um, somebody uh, taking bribes for uh, being able to move through. I'm just saying for hundreds of years in order to move with your camel caravan of whatever it was you were bringing east or west, you had to pay the the tribal chief who dominated that area to get through there. So I think that that probably uh, and, and has has been carried forth, and so police get money um, in many cases to allow people to pass through.
And that's an oversimplification, but I think that's It's just hard to imagine undoing that. I mean, even, even if we were talking about having a, a year of U.S. soldiers in ANCOP there or some additional extension of that time, even if you're thinking about adding, having that for five years in place or seven years in place, it's still hard to imagine after all this history it reverting to a... I don't know, a system in which the people are feel like they're part of their... Yeah. Right. being served by their government, by their police. You're exactly right. Yeah. But for most people, the face of the government is a policeman and the district, either the city or out in the rural area, the district government. That's that's the face of Droa, because they, they don't sit at home and watch TV. They listen to radio. Uh, they don't read the papers because of the literacy rate. So what they when they see government, it's fixing a road, water, uh, electricity, a policeman. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, if we're trying to connect them to their government, there's got to trust it. Yeah. And so, improving security enough so that more qualified, uh, able people will come work here, uh, and then you, then you, that's, you defeat the insurgency by taking away the the base of support uh, for people that uh, would normally. Uh, support the insurgents because they trust their government. All right, now we are moving into District 9 now. Uh, Which you can tell by the sounds of the rocks right. in the vehicle. <laughs> the, uh, it you is see a little very, girls waving, a little boys throwing rocks. Right. You see older men chastising the girls for waving. That's, I mean, a lot of hard stares, it yeah. seems like. Yeah. We drove through Kandahar City, some kids waving, some kids throwing rocks at us, uh, and we headed up to a checkpoint overlooking the Argandab Valley. That is a place name that Americans are learning a lot about right now because it's the dateline for way too many stories of American troops losing their lives here. If the uh, police efforts, the policing efforts, security efforts, uh, don't combine to create enough space for Afghan government to step up in a way that is working, I don't get the sense that there's a plan B. Is there a plan B? We'll have more with the American general in charge of Southern Afghanistan, Brigadier General Ben Hodges, in just a moment. Well, tight. No pause. All right. In the event of an unlikely event of an IED strike or a small arms fire attack, just stay on the vehicle, right? Um, and then in the event of a rollover, especially involving water, move to the nearest exit. Staff Sergeant Spyhart's going to brief you on those. And then move to the nearest coalition vehicle or soldier, all right? When we come back, more of my exclusive interview with General Ben Hodges, the man in charge of Regional Command South here in Afghanistan. If you have been paying any attention at all to America's war here, you've been paying attention to General Ben Hodges and his mission in Kandahar, which is a big, serious deal, but one that doesn't preclude snacking. General, is this um, the official Regional Command South bread product? <laughs> it's an uh, official Afghan bread product uh, with the RC South seal of approval. <laughs> it's good, man. It's like pizza dough. It is wonderful. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're coming to you live from Camp Phoenix in Kabul, Afghanistan. We arrived here on Sunday, then spent two nights and two days in Kandahar, where I spent a day with the general in charge of southern Afghanistan for the U.S. military, Brigadier General Ben Hodges. I also did an embed with U.S. troops in the 82nd Airborne. The idea of counterinsurgency is that you 
well, counter the insurgency, right? You fight insurgents by killing and capturing them, sure, but you also try to create an environment in which the insurgency can't survive because the population doesn't want the insurgents to be running the show. They want their own government to be running the show. So that term nation building that's become as much of an epithet in American politics as the word liberal, nation building, that's honestly what they're trying to do here. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Standing up government and law and order via the government so that no one in the population wants what the Taliban is offering. Here's one of the concrete problems with that on law and order. In Kandahar, the province of Kandahar has authorization to have 87 judges working in the justice system. 87. You want to know how many are actually on the job? Nine. Nine judges for a, prov a, a province of, of like a million people. So if you live in Kandahar and you want justice, the Taliban's frankly offering much quicker service than the government can provide. It's a, it, it is one of those weird facts. It's a weird fact, but it is, it is one of the types of weird facts that is going to determine if Afghanistan falls into Taliban control again or not. Whether or not we win here, I guess is the word. David Cameron, the conservative prime minister. Yes. So we obviously did not want him to come into power. He is a bad man. He has done many homophobic things. He is a fan of the free market. He's not a good dude. And he won in a very similar fashion to the way George Bush won, which was amazing when I was in Edinburgh and met all sorts of people who were like, we're all not like you. We would never elect someone like George Bush. Burp, burp, burp. So anyway, David Cameron, who I hate, got on the floor yesterday and demanded in a really great speech that there be investigations to any British soldier that was complicit in our torture. Uh, Jamie, you must be confused. Uh, see, the U.S., was primarily responsible for torture. So I think when, I'm sorry, everybody. I think what you meant to say was that Obama, President Obama, said that the U.S. is finally going well, to I, investigate no, those no, allegations. I, well, I thought that, and, and it took me a second to, to readjust, but I, I'm pretty positive he was speaking with an accent. He was, he was a white man. He was in possibly London. And, and and he was absolutely. I mean, the words British were used over and over again. But then, why would why would they investigate it when we haven't even done investigations? And in fact, Obama has said we need to look forward and not backwards. That makes no sense. Well, I think that he was trying to abide by law. Mm -hmm. and, and this law you speak of—that's something important to these people. I'm I'm pretty sure it is. Okay. And Interesting. I, and I think that 
in order to make up for some of these heinous crimes. In fact, David Cameron is going to go as far as looking into compensation Interesting. for innocent people who have brought suit who were tortured in places like Guantanamo Bay. And it is bad to torture innocent people, correct? Well, I mean, if I was a person... Mm-hmm. If, hypothetically. Hypothetically, if I was a person and somebody beat the shit out of me or drowned me with a bag over my head uh-huh. and I didn't do anything... I would, I would, you know, want an apology. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe some, I don't know, money so I could buy drugs that would maybe take the night terrors yeah. out of my terrified brain. Right. I could, I could see that. So that's interesting that a country not primarily responsible, although right. a close second yeah. is... Uh, yeah, don't you worry, guys. You're, you're, you have plenty of responsibility as well, but... That they're willing to investigate, and our great leader, our new hope, Barack Obama, right, wants us to look forward and not backwards and let war criminals go. Right. And what's so upsetting is I really got into Cameron's speech, and I fucking hate the guy, because not only was he saying, we need to investigate. He wasn't saying this in a, like, hey, hey, guys, uh, I'm just going to speak into the camera. Uh, look, we fucked up really bad and I just uh, uh, I've been up all night trying to figure out what to do and just don't don't fucking don't tell Germany they are so fucking cocky every time we drop the ball that no I see I can just see Merkel in my head right now just <laughs> taunting me he was so like proud he was like we're gonna investigate because we're better than this yeah and of course it was like it wasn't even a fucking debate. It's like, of course. Now, who knows if he was politically pressured to well, do this? Let's if- also see what the investigation reaps. You know, if they come sure. out the other end and they're like, nothing happened, and right. we're all like, what? Well, we investigated it. <laughs> but yeah, but just at least in that moment, by comparison, and look, guys, for the love of God, don't email me. I hate David Cameron. <laughs> And, and yeah, he may have been pressured. I don't care. I'm just saying, by comparison, it's so pathetic that Barack Obama, the liberal... Air quotes. Right. Hasn't, hasn't done it, anything. Has done the opposite. And, in fact, his civil liberties policies are worse than the Bush administration's. Yes. Because correct. he will assassinate you without trial, which is terrifying. Right. So I want to talk about that. We also... Brought up WikiLinks, Bradley Manning, the soldier who leaked the papers, who Daniel Ellsberg's who who leaked the Pentagon papers, says, you know, this is the first time someone has done something. Essentially, he didn't say of my caliber, but of his caliber. Yeah. Like, this is really huge. He's being charged today. So, remember, guys, and Glenn Greenwald at Salon.com pointed this out today. The people committing the war crimes, not being charged the bankers who bankrupted our country mm-hmm. not being charged in fact sometimes getting promoted and spots on Barack Obama's cabinet but if you leak these documents showing war crimes because you're an actual patriot and you're like I love my country and I don't want my country being responsible for this then you go to jail or if you're an environmental activist and you unfurl a banner 
to non-violently protest, they'll threaten you with three years in prison until a sane judge goes, what? And throws it out. Yeah, thank God. Thankfully, yeah. I mean, he could have gone to jail for three... By the skin of his teeth, did not go to jail for three years. But yeah, these are the people who are held accountable under our great justice system. But yeah, if you uh, if you start wars, illegal wars, if you kill workers in mines or on oil rigs... You will go free because you are rich. Right. Uh, also... In America! America, we'd lock you up if you do the right thing. Or if you're poor, but if you're rich, you go free. To be that good, it must be taxing. There's no such thing as satisfaction. You're making things happen while I'm relaxing like a Sunday afternoon. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. If you haven't noticed, Obama's still holding prisoners down at Guantanamo Bay, even though he promised to have the place shut down by six months ago. And leaving aside his upcoming shell game, whereby he's going to shuffle prisoners over to Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, consider for the moment the case of one individual still held at Guantanamo. His name is Mohammed Hassan Odaini. He's been at Guantanamo for eight years now. He was just 18 when he arrived there, having been plucked by Pakistani police while he was at university. Odaini always asserted he had nothing to do with al-Qaeda, and actually his captors agreed shortly after he arrived. In 2004, then, a Pentagon official cleared him for release, but for six extra years now, he's languished down there. This is an outrage, as U.S. District Judge Henry Kennedy ruled on Thursday. Kennedy called O'Diney's imprisonment unlawful and added, The evidence before the court shows that holding O'Diney in custody at such great cost to him has done nothing to make the U.S. more secure. It's cases like O'Diney's that raised the ire of the world about what's been going on down at Guantanamo and actually that got Obama to, to agree to shut the place down. But Obama still drags his feet. And these grotesque injustices still continue. The idea of counterinsurgency is that you, well, counter the insurgency, right? You fight insurgents by killing and capturing them, sure, but you also try to create an environment in which the insurgency can't survive because the population doesn't want the insurgents to be running the show. They want their own government to be running the show. 
So that term nation building that's become as much of an epithet in American politics as the word liberal, nation building, that's honestly what they're trying to do here. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Standing up government and law and order via the government so that no one in the population wants what the Taliban is offering. Here's one of the concrete problems with that on law and order. In Kandahar, the province of Kandahar has authorization to have 87 judges working in the justice system. 87. You want to know how many are actually on the job? Nine. Nine judges for a, prov a, a province of, of like a million people. So if you live in Kandahar and you want justice, the Taliban's frankly offering much quicker service than the government can provide. It's a, it, this is one of those weird facts. It's a weird fact, but it is, it is one of the types of weird facts that is going to determine if Afghanistan falls into Taliban control again or not. Whether or not we win here, I guess is the word. When people talk about Kandahar, they, one of the things that we sort of say and don't detail really, at least in civilian news coverage of what's going on here, is what that means for Taliban governance. I mean, we know there's a shadow Taliban governor yeah. here, but are, are they doing dispute resolution? Are they doing, you know, punishing people for theft? Are they... Yeah, there is a... Uh, if, you th if you think of the insurgency as a, an argument for the loyalty of the people between the Afghan government and the Taliban. You know, the, the Taliban is not a popular uprising. I mean, they don't, they don't do anything. They, they, don't, they haven't built a school. They don't fix irrigation systems. They don't do any of that. But they sure scare people. Um, and they do dispute resolution very quickly. And they're not seen as corrupt. So for uh, an average farmer, you know, he's, he's trying to say, is my life better with the government, if I don't trust the government, if the face of the government is the police and they're taking money from me every time I go anywhere, it, it's not worth growing these wonderful pomegranates because I can't even get them into Pakistan to export. Um, you know, is my life a whole lot worse with the Taliban? Right. If they're not corrupt, but they're brutal. Right. Uh, and, and that's that's the problem. They they are extremely they're quick. I mean, they do dispute resolution very fast, but it usually is you know Sharia law. You know, people get killed, um, physically punished, um, and of course, there's no human freedom. At times, the Taliban outlawed kite flying. So they're not popular, but the government has got to provide a better uh, choice. Yeah. Otherwise, people are not going to take the risk. That's what it's about. I mean, if they're seen supporting the government, if they don't feel secure, you know, the Taliban are going to come in that night yeah. and kill somebody or hurt them or wreck their house. But it's it's almost like we that's the central that's that's the central thing that makes this feel almost impossible because the if the Taliban when they took power in the 90s it was in here and in other places it was in part by saying we're not going to be corrupt we're religious uh, we're students and and the corruption of the government isn't serving you we can serve you we'll be brutal but at least we'll be honest if they're still offering that and we're trying to make an Afghan government that is not corrupt to be a viable alternative to that. But our very presence, by virtue of the fact that we've got to spend a ton of money, and we're foreigners, and we've got to protect ourselves and all this stuff, our influence here, our presence here is inherently corrupting, just because a lot of money flows everywhere we go. It's like, it's not two steps forward, one step back, it's two steps forward, two steps back. Uh, I, I don't think I buy that. I, I don't accept that we are inherently corrupting. I, I, I know what you're saying there. That certainly that much money coming in to 
potential for that, and, and I have no doubt that you know money is some money has made it to the wrong people. But I've met enough uh, Afghans who have demonstrated those kind of qualities, whether they're in the military, police, or government, who are brave, who take huge risks, and are committed to um, uh, having a, an Afghan society that respects its, its culture and traditions um, and can provide some basic services. That, and the, the requirements are really relatively simple as you look around. Um, but it really is up to the Afghans. I mean, we'll never have more capability than we've got this fall. So um, I think that the conditions are there for the Afghans to be able to to, to take this opportunity. Uh, I've met enough to convince me that they that they can do it. And I'm also very confident that the pressure that we have applied to the Taliban leadership and the uh, insurgent networks uh, has really taken a toll on them too. You know, warfare is about willpower. The enemy has morale, the enemy has will. That's been eroded. Uh, there's plenty of uh, indicators that suggest that you know they're tired of running every night. They're tired of worrying about every time you know they pop up, are they going to be killed or, or get rolled up? So uh, there are enough indicators to tell me that this is very doable. I'm a very realistic optimist. Um, you know, we've been here nine years now, but the U.S. has been focused on this area in Kandahar really in a big way only in the last year and a half. So. Um, I have no illusions about what it's going to look like a year from now, but I, I see the possibility. The people needed to provide policing, basic services, the kind of government jobs that you're talking about. Obviously, you need good, committed Afghan nationalists, essentially, to do that. You need people who want to do it for their country. Right. People are brave and willing to see that transition through. Who's going to pay their salaries in the long run? Well, that's a great point. I, I think... Uh, you know, Afghanistan does not have oil, but they certainly have incredible mineral wealth potential. Incredible mineral wealth potential, potential being the operative term there. We'll be talking more about that on tomorrow's show with NBC's Richard Engel. We went with General Hodges to the edge of the Argandab Valley, uh, which has seen very fierce fighting recently. A soldier from the 82nd Airborne was killed there by an IED while we were here. American troops under General Hodges' command have, with Afghan police, set up a system of 13 checkpoints around Kandahar City to, they say, disrupt the freedom of movement for insurgents in that area. Checkpoint 9-1 is brand new. It's on high ground overlooking the Argandab, and it is hot, it is dusty, and did I mention it's hot? Uh, President Karzai, uh, a lot of senior leaders in Afghan history have come from this area also they're very proud of that fact so it, it's just an important area so having control of Argandab uh, is an important part of controlling providing security for Kandahar City 60 percent 55 percent of the Argandab is under government control now the other 40 45 percent is contested I mean you get the sense both of I mean this is probably naive of me to say but you get a sense equally of how hard this is and how committed the forces are to trying to make it work despite what an uphill climb it is uh, that's true. I, I think that uh, you know the, the soldiers, and uh, you just heard the uh, NCOB there. He, he's very professional. Yes. And uh, they are protecting the population um, so that uh, they can trust their own government is what Hamkari is, is all about. And the security ring is uh, probably the most visible manifestation 
of that. Do you expect, because it's so visible, do you expect it to attract attack? I do, um, uh, because the enemy will see that this is going to start having a positive effect. People will feel more secure because there's police out there that are, these things are not toll booths. And uh, so the, it'll be a threat to the enemy's ability to just kind of move around. Uh, as, you, as you saw flying over Kandahar City and driving through it, it is not a Taliban stronghold, but there is a sense of real need for law and order. And there's no doubt that there are Taliban in there. These checkpoints will... Uh, significantly reduce their ability just to kind of go in, threaten people in town, and do that sort of thing. So, you know, people worry about assassinations of government officials, that sort of thing. This is part of um, preventing that. I know this is a, a difficult question, but if over the next year it doesn't, essentially doesn't work to establish better governance in Kandahar, if the uh, police efforts, the policing efforts, security efforts, uh, don't combine to create enough space for Afghan government to step up in a way that is working. I don't get the sense that there's a plan B. Is there a plan B? Um, there's plan B just more time? Is There's no reason why this shouldn't be successful if the Afghans do their part. I mean, we have, I, I've never met an officer that didn't want more capability, so I would never turn away more engineers or more military police, but we have enough to do uh, what we have got to do in Kandahar, assuming that the Afghans step up and do their part. If they don't? Uh, we will have, we'll have given them the best chance they've ever had. You can only control about 20% of the variables that are going to determine the outcome here. Well, that's true. And I think that's why, uh, you know, General Carter said, look, you got to have an Afghan solution. You know, we've been trying for years to come up with a coalition solution. Um, all well-intended, great ideas that maybe just were not sustainable in an Afghan culture um, or financially were not sustainable. So, um, letting the Afghans come up with a solution where we're the enablers in terms of helping with security um, till those things can take root. I, I think the people live out here, they want to support their government. Their government's got to give them a reason to it. Yeah. I think they're predisposed to want to support their government so that they can, you know, continue to harvest the best pomegranates in Central Asia and export them, but the government's got to do certain things to allow that to happen. It swung real wide for us. <laughs> <laughs> If things don't work, if for all that American troops are doing here, if the space they're trying to create for the Afghan government to fill in isn't filled in by the Afghan government, then as General Hodges says, we'll have given them the best chance they've ever had. That's what the deadline for next summer for starting to leave is all about. It's not about the Taliban, it's really not. At least it isn't in Kandahar. That deadline is to create a sense of urgency to stand up Afghan police and Afghan governance now. We're not staying, and they have to know we're not staying if we want them to take advantage of the fact that U.S. troops are here now to provide security and kill Taliban guys. If we want them to act with a sense of urgency to start doing policing and governance here. Here, now, while they can, with us. Here now because they know we won't stay forever. None of what's happening right now in terms of building up Afghan capacity to compete with the Taliban would be happening without that July 2011 deadline looming. And anyone who tells you differently doesn't know what they're talking about, Senator. The Eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, 
but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. Governments around the country are feeling the strain of budget pressures, and in Washington, at least, that strain is producing some strange alliances. Take Ron Paul and Barney Frank, the Libertarian Republican and the Liberal Democrat, co-wrote a Huffington Post op-ed this past week. The op-ed takes aim at a long-time budgetary sacred cow, U.S. military spending. Barney Frank joins me now from New York City. Congressman Frank, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to have a chance to talk about what's as important an issue as any that confront us. Well, maybe you can explain for us exactly what it is that you and Ron Paul are proposing. What we're seeing is this hangover from the Cold War, when America was seen as the superpower that had to protect everybody everywhere, is outdated. And if you do not expect our allies in Europe and Japan to pick up more of their own burden of defense, then you will be cutting domestic programs that promote the quality of life very savagely. You might be increasing taxes to a point where it would be economically unwise. So are you saying that we should close some of those military bases that we've had overseas really since World War II? We don't need 15,000 Marines in Okinawa. They're a hangover from a war that ended 65 years ago. I do not want to see the People's Republic of China unchecked over there, but we'll have sea power and air power to deal with that. No one thinks you're going to land 15,000 Marines on the Chinese mainland to confront millions of Chinese military. Similarly, with regard to Europe, NATO was a great accomplishment 61 years ago. We are as far chronologically from the formation of NATO in 1949 as that period was from the administration of Grover Cleveland. And I don't think Harry Truman was continuing any military policies from the Cleveland administration. So, yeah, I don't see why we need troops in Okinawa, why we need troops in Germany, why we need troops in Italy. And people said to me, well, those are your allies, and that's what you do with allies. You have troops in their country. Well, if that's the case, where are the Belgian troops in Arizona? <laughs> where, where are the French troops but, in, uh, in South Dakota? But it's true. Don't we get some political and economic favors in return for our military investment overseas? And, and no. how? No. There may be limited situations, yes. We get something from uh, Kyrgyzstan because we put a base there that services us in Afghanistan. But we're not getting any political or economic favors from the Japanese. If we didn't have all these troops overseas, we wouldn't need as many. We do want to shrink the military. There is one other area, though, where there are major savings. During the Cold War, we had three ways of destroying the Soviet Union with thermonuclear weapons. We had nuclear submarines, we had the intercontinental ballistic missile, and the strategic air command. Today, the Soviet Union has been replaced by a much smaller and weaker Russia with whom we are much friendlier. I'm being very radical. What I said to the Pentagon is, you know, these three ways you have of destroying what's now Russia, why don't you keep two and give up one and save us tens of billions a year? Have you already set up a task force on this? We set up a sustainable defense task force. It includes uh, one guy who worked in the Reagan administration, people from the Cato Foundation, some people with, with environmental and peace credentials. They have put out an illustrative program which allows you to save $100 billion a year, which is how we get the trillion over 10 years. What we want to do is the president and some congressional leaders have appointed a deficit reduction commission that's supposed to tell us by December how we can bring down the deficit over a 10-year period. What Ron Paul and I are doing, along with a Republican, Walter Jones from North Carolina, Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat, Morgan, is writing to them and saying, don't just come to us and say we're going to raise taxes 
and we're going to limit Social Security and cut EPA, et cetera, et cetera. There needs to be proportional reductions in the military budget, which, by the way, at $700 billion is more than all the domestic programs other than Social Security and Medicare put together. Now, would you welcome everyone to join in this effort you're making? You know, we've seen uh, the Tea Party movement uh, looking for ways to cut the budget. Would you work with the Tea Party, for instance? Of course, look, in the first place, with the exception of a few explicit homophobes. Uh, I, I work with anybody, and there are always going to be points of common ground. And if we can get together on you know, cutting out uh, the three ways of destroying the Soviet Union and getting it down to two, then we can continue to provide the kind of benefits we provide in Medicare. But you're saying you want to save this money so it can be spent on programs that you care about, whereas uh, Ron Paul, I would think, would be saying he wants to save this money so that it's out of the budget completely. How do you resolve those kinds of differences? We both agree that we should free up money by cutting out military expenditures that not only don't support our national security, but in cases like Iraq make it worse. If we aren't able to make those cuts in the military, then we are going to find pressures for taxes higher than Ron wants and for domestic cuts more than I want. And we would like to be able to save that money and then have that second debate. Last uh, year, uh, Director of National Intelligence, Dennis Blair, um, uh, well, he was at the time the Director of National Intelligence for Obama, had uh, said that the Obama administration had authorized assassinations of American citizens working with terrorist groups overseas. But don't worry, it was only three people. And they were really, really bad guys. Okay? Now, remember we had the former covert operative uh, from the CIA on the show yesterday, Barry Ice, right? And what did he tell us? He said, if they tell you two tapes are missing, that means 92 tapes are missing, right? So they said, oh, don't worry, uh, we only have three American citizens on our execution list, on our assassination list. No due process, no trying to capture him, throw a drone strike up his ass and he's dead, right? Okay, they say, but, and don't worry, it's in a limited amount of place. Guess what we're going to find out? Well, it turns out... Uh, the Deputy White House National Security Advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism, John O'Brennan, just gave an interview to the Washington Times where he says, nah, it's not just three people. There are dozens of Americans who are slated for execution. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. We've just gotten used to it. It's like, oh, yeah, well, of course, uh, predator strikes, drone strikes, assassinations of American citizens, obviously. Now, listen, listen to what Brennan says. There are, in my mind, dozens of U.S. persons who are in different parts of the world, and they are very concerning to us. If you're apparently concerning uh, the U.S. government, you might get assassinated. He says, quote, not just because of the passport they hold, but because they understand our operational environment here. They bring with them certain skills, whether it be language skills or familiarity with potential targets, and they are very worrisome 
and we are determined to take away their ability to assist with terrorist attacks. Let's put on the decoder ring. That means, hey, if you know, if you grew up in New York or you grew up in Kansas, well, you are, uh, understand our operational environment here. And if you are fluent in English, they bring with them certain skills, whether it be language skills or familiarity with potential targets, like a mall in Minnesota, right? These, he's talking about American citizens abroad. They could just, they just make the decision, that's it, you're on the list, that's it. I, this is not the Bush administration. This is the Obama administration. It's not that Bush didn't do this, it's that Obama has expanded it. Change, you can believe it. All right, uh, Brennan continues. If an American person or citizen is in uh, a Yemen or in a Pakistan or in Somalia or another place, and they're trying to carry out attacks against U.S. interests, they also will face the full brunt of a U.S. response. What we need to do is apply the appropriate tool and the appropriate response. That appropriate tool is a bomb on top of your head coming from a predator. Now, does it sound like it's limited to you guys? Dozens of Americans, it could be Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, or any other place, and you will face the full brunt of the U.S. response if you are assisting other terrorists. Now, do you trust their definition of that? All right, don't talk to anybody fishy in Germany if you're on vacation there or in Italy or France. I don't know, I don't know. I mean, look, do I think that they're going to go and start assassinating random American tourists throughout the world? <laughs> no, I don't think that, okay? I hope not. That would be beyond absurd. But once you give the government ultimate power like this, how do you walk it back, and where do they draw the line? Those are the questions. So don't worry, though. The legendary General David Petraeus will help you uh, draw that line because he has, quote, ordered a broad expansion of clandestine military activity in an effort to disrupt militant groups or counter, threat, counter threats in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and other countries in the region. Once again, other countries in the region. Have at it, Hoss. Okay? And uh, this was leaked to Mark Mazzetti at the New York Times. That means uh, that General Petraeus told him to write it, and he did. So Petraeus is letting you know, I can execute anybody in any of these countries. Okay, next. What, would you, what else would you like to know? Uh, Mazzetti also says that there's a joint, I love this title, Joint Unconventional War Task Force Execute Order. And it, quote, authorizes the sending of American Special Operations troops to both friendly and hostile nations in the Middle East, Central Asia, the Horn of Africa, to gather in intelligence and build ties with local forces and execute them. Okay, I added that last part, but that's because that's, in fact, what they're doing in some of these cases, right? As we see from the other reports. In March 2009, uh, Seymour Hersh had reported about this, JSOC for short, uh, and it's a, he, as he explained at the time, it's a special wing of our special operations community that is set up independently. They do not report to anybody, except in the Bush-Cheney days, they do directly reported to Dick Cheney's office. And Congress had no oversight of it. So, now, if you thought it's bad that we don't know where they're drawing the lines on which American to execute, <laughs> don't worry, during the Bush years, <laughs> without consulting anyone else, the Vice President would get to make that decision. Now, during the Obama years, we don't know who gets to make that decision. Does Biden get to pull the trigger? I hope not. <laughs> right? He thinks somebody's a smart ass, and that guy's in a lot of trouble. 
<laughs> no, it's not going to work that way, but, but it is this enormous power. Okay, now, who ran this special unit, the JSOC, from April 2003 to August of 2008? You want to guess? The commander in charge. Huh. General Stanley McChrystal. <laughs> ah, funny world. Funny, funny world. Okay. But don't worry. He seems like he's got everything figured out. He wouldn't be foolhardy or rash. He wouldn't make decisions that don't make sense afterwards. He's got a lot of common sense, and he's got... What is it, JR? Nunchucks? I got it right this time. I wanna have friends That I can trust you can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. We're in Afghanistan because it really matters. We're in Afghanistan because if we fail in Afghanistan, it will have a direct, immediate danger to us. It will increase al-Qaeda's worldwide reach. They will come back with the Taliban in all likelihood, and they will gain a worldwide success, which will be very dangerous for our national security interests. So we have to be clear. The American public needs to be clear on why we're in Afghanistan. This is not Vietnam, a war which was which I participated in as a State Department civilian in the Lower Mekong Delta when I entered the government. This is not the Balkans. It's not Iraq. This is quite different. Uh, this one relates directly to our safety at home. But we tried to do counterinsurgency in Vietnam too. Um, pretty explicitly. When you look back at those efforts all those years ago, do you really have confidence that a, a foreign country can help create a state somewhere else? That we really can stand up an Afghan government? I think we can if we do it right. And the fundamental difference is the one you and I just already mentioned. It matters to our homeland security. Vietnam did not, although at the time the administrations in power did say it did, but they were wrong. It's a, it's a process which is not easy, and you only embark on it if you decide that it is absolutely critical of the U.S. national interest, which it is. That's the argument. That's the case the Obama administration makes for the war in Afghanistan now. The case made to me this week by diplomat Richard Holbrook, as you saw there, but shared across the administration. And the case is that we have to be in Afghanistan because it's critical to our national interests. They say the war was mishandled badly for years by the Bush administration. And that's why we're dealing with a Taliban resurgence. And that's why we had almost nothing to show for our years there when Obama took office. But they say, despite how bad it is, we can't just leave. We can't leave because we can make progress there. And failing to make that progress would be a disaster. The Afghan government collapses, the Taliban returns. And yes, that's awful for the Afghan people. But for us, that would also mean a victory and sanctuary 
again for al-Qaeda, for the terrorists who attacked us nine years ago and who would love to do so again. To avert that, the argument goes we need to do everything we can to ensure that there is an Afghan government. A big, competent national police force that isn't corrupt, that serves and protects its people. A well-trained, well-equipped army that can defend the government against attempts to overthrow it. Basic services, national ministries, governors and municipal offices, all linked to the several central government in Kabul. Even if the Afghan people hate the Taliban, a feeble, corrupt government there doesn't stand a chance against the Taliban coming back. And we need, and they need, for the Taliban to not come back. And if not the Taliban exactly, then other radicals who would happily make common cause with transnational terrorist groups. That's the argument. And so we are still there in increasingly huge numbers. President Obama has tripled the number of American troops there since he has been president. And those troops are there with a definite, clear mission. Set up that police force, set up that Afghan army, secure village after valley, after road, after town, after orchard, after city, after mountain, after mountain, after mountain. Secure them to make room for the Afghan government to extend its reach. So the government, not the insurgents, controls the country and controls the people and serves the people. That mission involves combat because the plan to set up and extend the reach of the Afghan government has enemies. Either people who don't like the government on its own terms or people who don't like the idea of the U.S. essentially setting that government up. There are a lot of crazed religious death cult radicals shooting at U.S. troops and Afghan soldiers and police right now. But that's not everybody. You don't have to be crazed or even religious to be against a foreign power fighting in your country. But we're there. We are there. We are talking about our Afghan partners. General David Petraeus' statement to the troops upon taking over command referenced the American military's compassion for the Afghan people. We're here to help, in other words. To protect you from bad guys, to build your government, in our own interests, sure, but in yours, too. The administration's argument for staying in Afghanistan and what to do there is logical. It's an argument I understand. As a, as a liberal, I believe in the social contract that people can collectively, through government, protect themselves, address problems, and reach for greater things than they could achieve alone or with only their families. I get it. I also feel like I saw eye to eye with the incredibly impressive American troops who are trying to implement the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. They are earnest, capable, professional, and they understand the mission and its value. It makes sense and, and, and it depends on a premise that is romantic and unproven and I believe unlikely. The consequences of there not being a real Afghan government are probably dire. Our desire for there to be a real Afghan government is strong and rational. But us just wanting it to be so doesn't mean that we're capable of making it so. To me, it seems likely that nothing we can do, nothing within our power as the United States of America, will result in there being a real Afghan government. Our presence there may in fact make that outcome less likely. What government can grow to full strength and legitimacy with a foreign military on its soil? What hope is there for a government to supersede the warlords and drug lords and power brokers it competes with? If the billions of dollars a month our military presence drags behind it like cans off newlyweds car bumpers, gets funneled to those same thugs the government's competing with. What better way for us to recruit for and romanticize the Taliban cause than to give them 10 years of armor-clad infidel foreigners on their land to invade against and to attack? A real Afghan government is the outcome we want for us and for the Afghan people. It's practically inarguable as a desired outcome. But whether or not that outcome is achieved is not really up to us. I know this is a a difficult question, but if over the next year 
it doesn't essentially doesn't work to establish better governance in Kandahar if the uh, police efforts, the policing efforts, security efforts uh, don't combine to create enough space for Afghan government to step up in a way that is working. I don't get the sense that there's a plan B. Is there a plan B? Um, is plan B just more time? Is there's no reason why this should be successful if the Afghans do their part. I mean, we have, I, I've never met an officer that didn't want more capability, so I would never turn away more engineers or more military police, but we have enough to do uh, what we have got to do in Kandahar, assuming that the Afghans step up and do their part. If they don't? Uh, but we, will have, we will have given them the best chance they've ever had. That's what we're doing. We're trying to give them the best chance they've ever had, and they may not take it. And our troops staying there may not make them more likely to take it. To recognize that is not to accept military defeat. Frankly, establishing a government in a foreign country is not a military objective. It just isn't. Counterinsurgency theory be damned. It is a civilian development objective, in this case with military support. A military objective is winning a war. War is destructive, not constructive. We send men into war with guns, not with shields. It is not to accept a military defeat to recognize that the 82nd Airborne can do many things, but it cannot make the governor of Nangrahar province not corrupt. If we think there's a future in which the Afghan government is real and it runs and controls that country to the exclusion of the Taliban, and it's there because we've made that possible, then there is an American national security interest in us still being there. But if that's not possible, no matter what we do, if no matter how much we want for that to happen, we can't make that happen, then, well, then... We will have given them the best chance they've ever had. We will have given them the best chance they've ever had. If we can't make the outcome we want come to fruition, then we should fund and train and support the Afghan government all we can. But each additional American life sacrificed to a goal we know we won't reach is a moral outrage, moral disaster, that we have a responsibility in this life during wartime to stop. Dollars? Yes. Lives? Lives? No. Not for a romantic wish, not for something we want but know we won't get. Dollars, okay. Lives, no. If you believe our actions, our American actions in 2010 can make it more likely that there's a real, like, gov a real government in Afghanistan, then asking Americans to die in Afghanistan is asking them to die for something that is in the national security interest of the United States, which is what American kids sign up for when they enlist. But if you believe that our actions, our American actions in 2010, cannot make it more likely that there's a real Afghan government, that there's a real government in Afghanistan, then asking Americans to die in Afghanistan is wrong. It's over. Development, training, support, okay. But lives, no. No. That's the choice. It's not partisan. It's not even passionate. It is rational.
Thanks for listening, everyone. So actually, as this show is being posted, I'm being whisked away to Netroots Nation in Las Vegas. So I want to take this opportunity again to thank everyone who made this possible. Uh, Some donations came in to help send me to uh, conferences this year. Uh, But Netroots Nation primarily was paid for by a scholarship, actually, uh, that was put together by Democracy for America. That's Howard Dean's organization currently run by his brother. Uh, You know, they're a great progressive group, you know, strongly progressive group. And... um, and that scholarship was made possible for me by you guys actually getting together and voting. And uh, it was kind of a, you know, mostly a democratic process of, uh, you know, voting, uh, help getting some people uh, selected for the scholarship. And then other people got in purely on the merits um, and, and based on their kind of application. But uh, but I got in exactly because because you guys voted to put me there. So huge, huge thanks for that. Uh, that means that. You know, my ticket to the event and the hotel and even some of my meals are paid for by that. So that's uh, a pretty huge deal um, that I'm very, very grateful to you guys for making possible. So I'm very excited about the trip. I mean, I think Netroots Nation would be great regardless, but actually because I'm a part of this uh, this scholarship program, I actually have this kind of uh, this built-in network of people who, uh, who you know, we're all going to get together and meet and, and – um, and so that you know, that's just going to add to the experience as well. So I'm excited about that. Uh, not in the very next episode, but in the one following, I will have all of my uh, Netroots Nation stories ready to go, and I will I will fill you in on all the details and all the fun and uh, festivities. Speaking of helping the show, of course, I just want to thank a couple of members uh, here at the end of the show today. I want to thank Wendy W., who signed up for a monthly membership back on March 26th and has stuck with the show since then. Thank you very much, Wendy. And Becky F. signed up uh, for a full-year membership on April 17th and uh, and purely out of the goodness of her heart decided to go a little bit above and beyond the uh, the standard membership level just to help out the show a little bit more. So that's hugely appreciated as well. So thanks, of course, to uh, Becky and Wendy and all of the members who make the show possible. So that's going to do it for today. I hope that everyone will continue to support the show in all the ways they know how. Uh, Check out bestoftheleft.com. There's a big box on the side of the website. It's orange. It says support BOTL, and it has lots of things in it. You know, the standards, there's the membership and donation stuff, but there's also uh, links where you can vote for us on Podcast Alley. That happens every month. Uh, You can review the show in iTunes. That helps get it a little bit more publicity in the iTunes uh, podcast store. There's even a listener survey that you can fill out and give feedback on the show if you have any, uh, you know, constructive criticism or suggestions for the show you can either fill out the uh, listener survey or just send me an email all that stuff is greatly appreciated and then also that is where the amazon.com search widget is in that box as well so you'll see it there unless and i I really should have a note about this on on the website but if you have ad blocking software on your uh, browser that'll make the amazon.com box disappear i get emails you know every once in a while once a month or so of someone saying that they tried to use it but they couldn't see it and it's probably because they're at work and and it got blocked by uh, by ad blocking software or whatever the case may be so just so you know that's uh, that's what's going on so that's all that. All of that set aside, uh, just telling friends about it makes a huge difference. Spreading the word and, and helping to grow the audience of the show uh, is is maybe the easiest 
and uh, and most profoundly helpful things you can do. So uh, please keep that up. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. So that's going to do it for today. To stay connected to the show between episodes, uh, f- find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can even help spread the word online that way. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside, the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors, meaning like without the members and donors, uh, this show used to run uh, four times a month. Now that uh, the members and donors have kicked in and support the show, it's up to 10. So just a little comparison for you. And all of this coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year Award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every Thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.